we walk in to that first gig, we're all 15. So our parents are still driving us to the gigs in the, in their minivans with our equipment loaded in the trunk. And we walk in before having played any show and we decided we, we needed merch. So we also pulled in money to go to Weiss Camp or something and get t-shirts made with our logo, which I made on PC Paintbrush. And I thought it was kind of cool logo. And on the back, it's a Sagacity, Champaign-Urbana's hottest new rock band. This is Champagne is also a band podcast. One songwriter, one song. I'm Sven, your host for a journey into the music of Champaign-Urbana. Recorded in the Blue Box studio with a songwriter from the Champaign-Urbana music scene, past or present. Champagne is also a band podcast is a member of the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. Welcome to Champagne is also a band podcast. Today I have Mike Carpenter of the band Decadence. And you may know Mike from such bands as Oh, I forgot to ask you, is it Saga City? <laughs> so it's Sagacity. I don't know if Sagacity. any people remember that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all right. It's it's neat to have it as part of like the yeah, yeah. the background. Which which was like your first band in high school. Yeah, and you played the drums. We're padding the resume a bit, let's be yeah, oh, honest. Uh, you know, Sagacity from a high school, and then yeah, there's a few others. And then there's Made. Yeah, yeah. And uh Civilian. Uh-huh. Which sounds like that was a, a band that kind of led you into decadence it did full disclosure about civilian is we sort of cop that name i wrote a wikipedia entry about audio slave oh and they were between audio slave and civilian i thought that's a cool name and they didn't take it so and that was sort of (laughs) the that was the precursor because there were a couple originals from that band we brought into decadence early on and it was the first time that i'd ever gotten from behind the drum kit and out towards the front to sing and play guitar yeah so and now we're in the present with decadence Mm -hmm. and mojo which is a tom petty tribute band yeah and uh, that was an offspring of a decadence great cover-up where we brought in our drummer ben donaldson's dad tim donaldson on Hmm. guitar and then roger perlman who's been playing keys forever i don't know if you know uh, captain rat and the blind rivets Uh uh-huh yeah yeah a local institution so that's roger's band and we did one great cover-up two years ago with that and it was just a sort of seamless transition into okay the thing that i used to sort of not make fun of but always be leery about tribute bands Mm. is well why don't they do an original thing? But then you play in original bands enough and you realize that, well, it is kind of fun playing in front of a lot of people. Right. And when they know every word. So, but it's been a lot of fun. So we still do that too. Welcome to the show. Hey, well, thank you for having me. (laughs) So uh, today we're going to be listening to the song, I'd Rather Be Lonely, off of the album Elegantly Wasted, which is going to be reissued. It's been remastered. Is that correct? Yeah, this has been something that over the last few years... Just with some idle time, going back to some of the old recordings, having learned a few tricks from other mixes I've done, and I went back with this album in particular, and I think finally got a mix that I'm proud of, that I think really captures the four of us in a room together. So this is part of the reissue that will be coming out in mid-March. Excellent. Excellent. And without further ado, here's the song. (laughs) 
Welcome back. Mike, my favorite question that I always like to ask first is, what came first, the music or the lyrics? That song or any other I've ever done, music. Always. Oh, really? Okay. And I was actually thinking about that because I, having listened to some of your podcasts before, I knew that question would come up. And for me, the bands that were formative for me, like Zeppelin, I mean, that's the mm. end all be all for me pretty much. But what struck me early on with him was the music and then the vocals and more the tone and just how he sounded than the lyrics because, you know, Ramble On, it's yeah. Hobbit imagery, which is cool, but it's more about the way that he sings it. So that, that tends to grab me more. And often we'll be rehearsing something and I'll just go with syllables and a melody and then kind of figure it out later. And a case in point would be another song of ours called You and Yourself, where I was just kind of singing gibberish and a friend said, well, did you say you and yourself? I said, no, but that sounds like a good title. So let's go with that. <laughs> but I'd Rather Be Lonely came together fairly quickly. And it was one of those things, too, that when we came up with those four words, I did a Google search thinking there's got to be a song with that title. It felt oh. too obvious, almost. Uh-huh. And I didn't spot anything too recognizable. Nothing really popped up on the first search. So I thought, okay, we'll go with it. Um, but I, I like the simplicity of it too. All that said, though, it was the music that really sort of um, propelled the lyrics and, and really the attitude of the lyrics because we played it early on with the same amount of energy that came across in that recording. So that, I hope, was captured in the words that I chose. What actually came first in the the writing process? Was there just a a riff that you were doing or it was like yeah so it was a it was the and it was that little twist from the d-e-e the d-e-e that's simple enough everyone does that the g-a-a of course but it was that a b flat a g a g e it was that b flat instead of going up to the b where i thought that that added a cool little twist at the end to keep it from becoming too i don't know if repetitive is the right word because i do like repetitive but i I, just to give it enough of a twist where it wasn't too formulaic or anything i think also when you're doing that kind of a scale right there you're generating what you could say is like a g blues scale right so you're, you're pulling that in the intro on this there's this really kind of cool play between all of the instruments but they're all kind of trying to join one voice but they also have their own all trying um, to converge at one point right so right. you have the the guitar coming in first and it's a single guitar with down then they go stereo as the second guitar comes yeah. in and then the bass and drums come in with that same chugga chugga sort of thing uh, but the idea is i think it's right about the 52nd mark when they all converge finally with the main riff mm-hmm. and what i wanted with that build up and i think we captured okay is a sort of release not that we write for driving music there's some bands that are perfect for driving and from a hard rock perspective yeah. i always go back to queens of the stone age and a lot of their stuff is just perfect driving music huh. but with this one it felt like okay that moment where you finally get off of the on-ramp mm. and now you're on the interstate and that's the moment where finally we all converge to the main let's call it the main riff which is i feel like release opening Mm -hmm. when everything else up to that point is very like okay you're building to something that's make a count you know it's interesting to me that you kind of built this whole song off of those four words and then that was the impetus for 
how you wrote the rest of your lyrics. Right? Yeah. Is that what you're, I, I mean. Yes, absolutely. I, yeah. So like the lyrics, for example, the verses are can't feel it away, which what does that necessarily mean? Uh, again, that goes back to the idea that when we were rehearsing it and working through, it was always the melody and it was syllables. And for mm. the most part, it was probably just da, 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 da. I knew something had to fit in that. Usually with lyrics uh, for me, and this is sort of from the school of Tom Petty, It's and this is before the Tom Petty tribute thing, but what I've grown to appreciate about Tom Petty stuff is that there is this sort of general, I don't know, I, I don't want to say vague, because that makes it sound like they aren't directed at something. But they're open-ended enough where people could take it and relate it to whatever experiences they have. So for can't feel it away, well, what are you trying to feel away? All back to this idea, I'd rather be lonely, wanting to still maintain this sort of defiance and you know full disclosure when we wrote this back in 2013 a lot of it is stemming from your early to mid 20s let's mm-hmm. say failed relationships and all i mean in rock and roll so much of it is based on that right you know? and there's nothing yep. wrong yep. with that but i did like the sort of the fu quality of i'd rather just be alone than with you and then just letting the verses sort of i guess more of the you can't shake it, right? You can't shake this. So ultimately the chorus, the resolution is, well, you know what? Screw this. I'd I'd just rather be lonely than that. You're right. You can totally relate to this in your twenties, right? This is, this to me is like quintessential twenties. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, late, late teens for me, it was really, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's sort of that period when you go to college and I think that there's this sort of anxiety of, all right, am I an adult? I don't feel like it. I still feel like a kid. And really, the responsibilities you have, I mean, I went to school here at the U of I, and at a place like that, you feel like such a small fish in a gigantic pond, but oftentimes in an overwhelming sort of way. Then you feel this pressure. It wasn't from my family. It wasn't from friends. Maybe it's social. I don't know. But you feel this pressure that, well, now I'm getting older, so I need to be able to begin and maintain some sort of relationship. Now, in hindsight, being 33, it's easy to look back at that and say, well, what did you expect? You know, when you're 18, 19, 20 years old, or even early twenties post-college, and now you're really trying to be an adult. You don't, you don't have things figured out. No one does. So that is all that anxiety. It's the admission of failure, but then back to the idea of the course, it's sort of like, well, so what? And it is a little bit, to be honest, of, I don't want to say pushing the blame on the other party, but it's trying to get back any sort of self-confidence that you may have lost in the process, which we've all been through that, where you get out of something and you feel at that moment like the lowest of the low and you're never going to find happiness or any of that which sounds very sort of sappy and everything but that's where rock and roll at its best i think is this sort of all right you're good like let's let's get going let's get that sort of mojo back into it this is what was really cool about the creative process that we had during that album and why i'm really proud of those 11 tracks but the signature or the most representative one is probably i'd rather be lonely i felt like it was a a very nice fusion of what we the four of us could do musically Mm -hmm. finding a very simple theme and going with it lyrically i've always been a music before lyric kind of person and but that's not to say that there aren't lyrics that move me and for me, the most important thing is as long as the hook of that song can resonate, then 
mission accomplished. And that's not to say that verses can be filler. You don't want that, even though I've got plenty of filler in, <laughs> in my lyrics, and, and I think most do. But it felt like there was this sort of, I'm not going to say I wrote it with like old blues men in mind, because that sounds so pretentious that <laughs> right but you do you still want to maintain the fact that okay we've all been down and okay what what next and the beauty of rock and roll and with the i think the intensity of the instrumental portion of that song is that the idea of those lyrics and the delivery had to match that intensity and out of all the songs we ever played live that's the one that wherever it's on the set list we can't play it early because it feels oh. like you know at that point well, where do we go? We got to, you know, you can't reach that same sort of climax that you do in that song. But yeah, that, that, that I think was the main idea with it. Decadence was formed in 2010. I feel like you've had enough of that experience of performing live. How do you pick your your set list. What goes through your mind as you're putting that together? Because I'm like imagining, oh, you want to start off with something that people would know, kind of get them in. Yeah, right. And then let's do something new. And then I don't know, like at least leave them with a bang kind of thing. I don't know. I, I just, I'm curious on I've, your thoughts of that. I've always been a stickler for it w- with set list. And it's, you know, you're writing a mixtape. I mean, you can't continue to pummel like the first six, seven songs and go with high intensity, high intensity and not have an ultimate, you know, bring it back. Because if you're going to play a two hour show and in general, what Decadence will do is a 90 minute to two hour set, which is totally doable. I, I prefer that single set to the set break. I feel like so much momentum is lost. So you'll go to a bar early gigs, we'd schedule, and they'd say, well, we need you from nine to midnight. And I'm like, well, we aren't Bruce Springsteen of the E Street Band, and we don't want to take a set break. So how about we just play, I don't know, uh, 9.30 to 11.30? And they're like, right. no, we need nine to midnight. So it's sometimes you acquiesce. But with the set list, it does feel like you want to get them early with high energy to start. And then maybe let's say fourth, fifth song in, you play something a little more mid-tempo. Like, I think you need to fluctuate though, because if you pack too many songs of the same kind around each other, Hmm. then especially if they aren't familiar with your music, it starts to sound sort of homogenous and easy to lose them at that point. Typically you start with a song that everybody knows, you end with the signature song. I do feel like you can never know exactly what to expect from a crowd and some venues are different than others and different towns are different than others and i'd like to say that champagne urbana is a good audience but i don't always see them as a super enthusiastic audience all the time yeah i'd agree with that i feel like they're super appreciative and no no shade on anybody but yeah i do sometimes feel like the audience doesn't give back as much as an audience member there'd be shows that we would play and afterwards i'd ask you know my wife hey i mean was the crowd into it i couldn't tell from on stage she's like oh yeah i mean they were totally like listening and into it but if they aren't if there's not motion because usually especially on stage you are kind of zeroed in on your surroundings and i'm one of those singers that when i'm actually singing my eyes are closed it's not i have anxiety or anything they just are and i don't take enough opportunities to actually look out and see what's going on mm. and if that moment that i do look out there i see people just sort of looking yeah and then now the other side of it would be well what would i expect them to do especially if it's a venue and they're sitting at a table i mean how much can you shimmy in your seat yeah. to make it look like man that person's really into it yeah right so the expectations as a performer you want just madhouse crazy all the time but there is a realization that sometimes it is just a listening audience. I find the same thing where I'll go to concerts 
an example being George Thorogood came to Virginia and we decided, what the hell, we'll go see George Thorogood. Uh-huh. And it was a really good show. I was impressed with it. But it is an older audience. So he's rocking out and we're sitting down. And I'm like, well, this doesn't feel right. Actually, another case to that was you talk about local audiences, Champaign-Urbana. Tom Petty came to State Farm Center. We had great uh-huh. seats. And I'm yeah. like, you know, I'm not the world's biggest Tom Petty fan, but this is pretty cool. Joe Walsh opens up. Great opening set. We're ready for Tom Petty. Unbelievable live performance and our section for the entire show until the inevitable American Girl closer were sitting. And oh. there's so many variables and a big one is crowd. And if the crowd is not into it and you are... You feel like, well, do I got to bring it down? Do I, does, is yeah. my temperature too hot right now? Do I need to bring it back down to not fit in? But you also don't want to be the guy that's the obnoxious one as everyone around you is right. just trying to enjoy right. a nice evening out. You know, It's like everybody at concerts and locally especially, they, they are looking for cues as, well, how can I act here? How into it can I get? Right. I understand it. And that's just a social thing, too. But there have been other instances, and this is where it's a shame. I think the Cowboy Monkey, for example, isn't mm-hmm. around anymore because it did feel like, as a band, we were able to get momentum there enough where, you know, we would play our sets from 9 to 11 on Friday nights every three months. And it was with somewhat, mm-hmm. somewhat regular. And there were enough people that would be regulars for those shows that they knew, well, let's go up and at least for half of it, get into it. So still chasing that as a performer, just like I do when I'm a spectator and I'm trying to get the same experience only in the crowd and Mm -hmm. hoping that those in my section or those on the floor, the pit with me are as into it as I am. We went on a little bit of a tangent. I'd love to come back to the song for just a a little bit. Mm -hmm. So how did you bring this song to the rest of the band? Was it was it complete or did you kind of let let everyone kind of flesh it out? I would say that song and most songs that we've done are usually, I'll bring the skeleton of the song in. I, I think what would have happened, and we used to rehearse in my basement before we got a dog and she's a corgi, she can't handle it. So we... <laughs> <laughs> I could totally see that. Yep. Oh, I know. It's, it, was so, it was so sad. And then there is a great warehouse space that Tim Donaldson lets us use for that, for both mojo and decadence. And it is nice. To, I also like having to travel somewhere to rehearse because then you feel like you're actually like on the clock. Mm, and you need to make the most gotcha. of it. Where if we were at our house, it'd be like, hey, let's go watch The Simpsons upstairs, which is great. Uh, yeah. But for focus issues, it's nice to have a spot. <laughs> yes. All that, another tangent there. But what about the skeleton of the band? And what we usually do is just, okay, Ben Donaldson on the drums. Well, what do you think would sound good here? If I were to have recorded a demo with everything from drums to bass to guitar, there's no way that I would have come up with that drum part. There's no way that I would have come up with the second guitar part, which is that sort of higher, more brash guitar that Mike mm. yeah, Solomon yeah. brings in. That comes in, I'm pretty sure, about 30 seconds in. The What's really cool about Alan on the bass is that he is a guitar player. I, I like when basses are played with a pick. I know that, mm. that sometimes purists may say that, that you shouldn't do that or whatever, but for our purposes, it's actually good because it just adds one more layer of i think directness it's not particularly complicated but what we have figured out is that our best songs are where the four of us are each doing something and we pick the spot in which we all come in unison and typically 
that's the main riff or the chorus riff is when we will come into unison but it's sort of like in the verses or in an instrumental intro that's where you need to let each person sort of bring whatever flavor they have into it and then ultimately coalesce i think that's a good term for that moment in the chorus that part i could have pointed out to each guy and said hey the chorus needs to sound Mm. like this yeah but if i would have said the same for the verse or the instrumental intro it would have been a far more let's just call it boring song Mm. you know so that's where especially ben donaldson on the drums is the engine that sort of keeps that thing going we figured out when we recorded it and throughout all the years that okay well these are our strengths and i think that's one other point too is that i never try to play like some face melting guitar solo because i can't and when you know your limitations i think and all four of us do that lends itself well to a song like this and you know that well don't do too much just do whatever serves the song so is that you uh, doing the guitar solo? No, that's Mike Solomon. And what's cool is that if you listen to that album in total, I think we each have, there's 11 tracks and basically split guitar solos on it. There are a few that will come to the shows and they're like, man, we listen to your album every Friday night. Oh, Mike S's guitar solo on that song was really cool where they could pick up the stylistic mm. difference. I am one that needs to write out a solo. And I he's one that just kind of feels it as he plays it. Does that mean that there's a heavy variation with with his solos or or do you i'm just saying do you know what to expect when you're playing live no no there are let's say the beginning of that solo is that was something where we went through maybe two or three takes at the studio uh-huh And I think all I said was, that's good. Start with that and then go wherever. And Mm. same thing live where he will start with and then whatever. So that's where the uniformity, it just kind of goes away. And and he is a much more spontaneous player. And listening, there's a live album we just put out through distribution as well from 2017. And the solo is the same for the first four bars. And then he goes off in a completely different thing. I kind of get the sense that for decadence structure is very very important in your particular genre of hard rock i feel like that's a very strong there's like a need to have the verse chorus verse and having you know a bridge and then a solo section and then does that ever feel like that binds you or it kind of frees you that's a great question hmm i don't want to cop out and say both are true to an extent Hmm. There was about a three, four year period before we're going to go in the studio again for a fourth album here. And in those intervening three, four years, it felt like I was constricted by that. Then ultimately realizing, and I I think in a weird way, the Tom Petty tribute side thing, when you have to go through someone else's catalog and realize that there's so much structure with what they do. So an example of that would be, let's go with Free Fallen as one example. Mm, Right. There's no second riff. I mean, it's the same thing. The only difference is that the chorus is just he's singing Free Fallen and then the verses he's... But the guitar is persistent Mm. throughout. There are no additional chord changes. There's no bridge. Right. And I think when we were going through that catalog and even like I Won't Back Down, like the whole Full Moon Moon Fever album is ridiculously simple, but therein lies, you know, I mentioned how we need to know our limitations. We can't play a Mars Volta track. Hmm. But we can play uh, the occasional Zeppelin track if we find a simple enough one. And then I I think that just fosters this idea that structure is okay. Structure can be beneficial because it does keep you, it's some guardrails that you can use. 
But within those guardrails, that is where I think the creativity can come in. How do you take like an old trope and make it your own? How can you take ideas that have been done, make it original and not derivative? And and to me, those are sort of like creative choices that within the guardrails of a verse and then a chorus, a verse chorus and the bridge after the second chorus, right? You don't need to follow that structure every time, but it is sort of, I'm trying to think of maybe a metaphor for it without sounding, mm-hmm. you know. And, and to that point as well, with a four-piece band, we we don't really jam, so we don't have any songs that we stretch out live. That, that wouldn't be in our nature. So I think that from the outset early on, it was, we're just going to be a rock band and nothing more, nothing less, right? And hopefully we get good at being a rock band and then people enjoy listening to us, whatever. But I, I think that knowing not just our limitations in terms of songwriting but in terms of performance so because there isn't a song that we can take a guitar solo that's 30 seconds on the record and then stretch it out to two minutes without it becoming boring live it's like well let's just stick with the four and a half minute song the four four and a half minute and occasionally you know we will write something that it's like oh that's different but usually it's more the differences are in stylistic or maybe like genre exercises. Like, well, we want to kind of try a Southern rock, you mm-hmm. know, flavor, mm-hmm. but it's still going to have that, you know, first chorus kind of structure. So yes, there was about a three, four year period where it was like, okay, well, I, I feel like I'm maybe writing the same stuff over and over. And that might be a problem. Well, it would be a problem if that's the case. But I think then you realize that those guardrails are not constraints all the time. If you can find variation within it. Do you have a particular favorite line? Well, it's not the quintessential line in the song, and it was added at the end of the second verse, and I thought it was kind of like clever wordplay, and it may may or may not be, I don't know. At the time, I was kind of proud of it, mm. was faith in nothing after all is faith all the same. And it's not some sort of like, you know, agnostic, atheist anthem, right? But I did think that... You know, back to the like mid 20s sort of thing uh, or early mid 20s where you become, I think, naturally skeptical about things. And for some reason, I felt it appropriate to throw that line in there, because if you get into a point in life where this song's about, for the most part, a relationship that didn't work out. And then the verses are a little bit, why, oh, why didn't it work out? And the chorus is like, ah, screw it, whatever. <laughs> so for that second verse to end like that, it, you know, I sort of wrapped other things that I felt had failed. This is going to sound very selfish, but other things that I felt had either failed me or that I had been told, hey, this is what it is. And then you get older and you're like, well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. The the skepticism of not just relationships, but just sort of (laughs) everything that you just kind of assumed. And with that line, what I do like about it is it could be interpreted a few different ways if any, if anyone ever wanted to parse it. But I thought, okay, faith in nothing after all is faith all the same, meaning that people, whether it be religious faith or whether it be just a belief system of some sort, that, you know, you could not have faith in someone else's belief system, but still have faith in whatever yours may be. I don't know. I, I felt like that was yeah. a cool little twist of that idea when I try to explain it just there, I, I probably stumbled into the, the, the dangerous trap, though, of writing lyrics and trying to be clever and instead writing something that could end with, you know, just fall with a thud. But it just felt like, I don't know why I threw that in there necessarily, but it's I felt that it applied even to that. I don't know. Maybe in hindsight, I would try to keep it more streamlined to what the song was about. But again, I, I don't want anything to ever become too literal. 
and just be this is a sad breakup song well right. i want to throw something in there where maybe if someone were to read the lyrics they could say well i guess it doesn't need to be about that what made this song be the one that you wanted to select as your favorite song to talk about one would be just i i think the instrumental performance is strong when we got done with that take in the studio and you got to wait for you know 10 seconds or whatever until there's dead silence you gotta wait until the last symbol fades and usually that crash or ride even if you mute it you gotta you gotta give it time and we're all looking at each other with a sort of and and even i'm holding my guitar and i'm like don't accidentally you know hit that you know like just right. scrape the the strings or whatever and when it faded, we were like, okay, that's good. And that whole recording thing we did in one eight-hour session with Ryan Groff at uh, Perennial up oh. in Champaign. And that one in particular, we knew that's going to be track two. And we feel like that's sort of uh, the first track is sort of like uh, ease people into it. And then track two, we wanted that to be the, the one that really hit. Hmm. So when we hit that the way that we did, it was like, okay, well, that loosened us up for the rest of the day, too, where we could be as efficient as we were, because we thought if we get through I'd Rather Be Lonely, everything else will just kind of come naturally, and it did. So it really set the tone for that day, and I think instrumentally is the reason I picked that, because it felt like the four of us were on when -hmm. we did that, and the only overdub on that thing is the guitar solo. Okay. Well, sorry, guitar solo, and there's... A second rhythm part, but I have two rhythms, rhythm uh, guitar tracks on each one, but rhythm guitar, two solo, and then one vocal. So, and, and again, it came together very quick. So this was our technically second album. And the first album's hard to listen to sometimes because we were such a young band and everything. I feel like bands, especially early on, you're just derivative. And eventually you find a way to take those influences and you know, you're like a sponge, you soak them in. And at first it comes out just like it came in, but eventually you do have your own twist to it. And this album in particular, it felt like we weren't trying to sound like anybody. Finally, we were us. Out of everything we've done, that album most encapsulates what we did best, I feel like. And it was also an arrival moment for me as a musician where the first album we did, and it was 12 tracks, and some of them hold up, some of them really don't. Uh, but this one, we went in thinking, we got 11 songs, we really like these, and all it takes now is actually just playing them and playing them well. Mm. And it's it's amazing the difference a venue can make, and in this case, a recording studio, where if you don't have anything to feed off of in terms of energy, you have to kind of create it yourself. And we start playing, and it's you know most like any studio space, it's very dry. Uh, for the most part, it's just very, wow, every little thing I'm playing you know, any mistake is only accentuated, even knowing that you can go back and fix it later. Right. And that is the beauty of digital stuff. But um, yeah, that that just felt like, uh, okay, take a deep breath. You guys are okay. You can you can make a, a decent album here. You can make a decent rock album and hopefully some people enjoy it. Champagne is also a band podcast is proud to support Exile on Main Street. Exile on Main Street, located in the old train station building at 100 North Chestnut Street in downtown Champaign, has been helping to build record collections since 2004, carrying a wide array of new and used LPs, CDs, and video games. Exile on Main Street has something for just about any music enthusiast and old school gaming devotee. 
Exile also hosts regular free live music shows on its stage, so be sure to check out their Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages for the up-to-date details on the next upcoming event. Open seven days a week. They can be reached by phone at 217-398-MAIN. That's 217-398-6246. Mike, tell me a little bit about like the Champaign-Urbana music scene. Like, You've been playing out in the scene for how long? The first gig we ever played, if this qualifies as music scene, was at Channing Murray Foundation Oh yeah, in 2003, which I always thought was a great room. Yes. You're talking upstairs? And, upstairs is the, the old church oh. kind of room. Great room. It's, it's big enough to hold enough people, but it's tiny enough to be like intimate. Yes, exactly. Time. And for yeah. us in high school, that's still an age where you basically just get your friends and hope that they bring a few of their friends. And you had to actually rent out the space. So I think we all pulled, even went to our parents like, hey, we need $75 and a $10 deposit to rent the space. And... And then mm. we would do this three bands, three bucks. Nice. And the first gig we ever did was Sagacity and Deck 16 and Missing the Point. And Missing the Point, actually, they went on to have a little bit of regional success. And they were very much in the pop punk kind of vein. But uh, those guys are still around. Steve Meadows is a local musician, great musician. And we walk in to that first gig. We're all 15. So our parents are still driving us to the gigs. In, the, in their minivans with our equipment loaded in the trunk. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and we walk in before having played any show and we decided we, we needed merch. So we also pulled in money to go to Weiss Camp or something and get t-shirts made with our logo, which I made on PC paintbrush and I thought it was kind of cool logo. And on the back, it's a sagacity, Champagne Urbana's hottest new rock band. So we walk into the venue all wearing our t-shirts and the guys from Deck 16 and Missing the Point were probably thinking, you little asshole, you know. <laughs> and we're like, you know, I mean, we we were, unbeknownst to us, we looked like total jerks, you know. But Channing Murray Foundation, we probably played mostly through high school. And then we ran out like McKinley Foundation. They mm. had a basement that we ran out. But it wasn't probably until college where we did a couple Canopy Club shows. And for us, that was a big deal because... Right. I knew that they would get the occasional regional or even national act in there. But the problem with Campy Club at that point especially was that if we wanted to play in the big room, but in order to play in the big room, you needed like a hundred people if it was going to even feel successful. Yes. Yeah. Like I would rather play in the void room. I think that's what they or the red room, whatever they call it, mm. it can be because that, that can turn into an intimate spot like yeah. that. But if you want to play in the theater, you better make sure you're like opening for, we opened for Zoso one time as decadences, and which I thought, oh, I'm kind of mm. opening for Zeppelin. This is cool. And that was great because there were enough people where it didn't feel like this big, empty former movie theater, which is what it is. But yeah, so it would have been, I think, the last, I'm 33, so I've been in band since 15. I guess the music scene, the scene was probably in college back in 2005. And we've in some way or another have been active in it and this is a really weird point that we're at here in 2020 because you know i was talking to you off air beforehand in trying to decide if we were going to get decadence back up and running again one thing that i was sort of eh about was where are we going to play and it used to be that there were enough venues in town that every couple months you can say well 
in March, I'm going to play Cowboy Monkey. And then in May, we'll do a Memphis on Main gig. We'll circle back over to Urbana in August and then come back to Cowboy Monkey in October and not exhaust your options in town. Now there's just not a lot of options. So you have to say, well, I guess we'll do three this year. I, I don't know. but And where? Yeah. And, and that's sort of a problem we're running into as a louder rock band because we did Iron Post back in the day because it was the only place that would have us. Kudos to Paul and the, the people over there for actually letting us come in, but it was so loud and uh, it's uncomfortable, yeah. you know, and that's why you need a little bit larger of a room and there's just not, not, not a lot of options for that right now. Canopy and now the city center are, are large enough, I would say. Um, and city center is great, but I mean, we, I couldn't take decadence there. Uh, we aren't going to draw well enough for that, but... With the Tom Petty band, we did one show there, and it turned out pretty good. But even with the, you know, 100 people or whatever we brought out, that's a big room. So you're looking out, mm. it's like, I think this is a good draw, but I can't tell. Whereas Cowboy Monkey back in the day, you get 40, 50 people, and it's still a fun time. And it feels like an, a vibrant right. performance. And like Memphis on Main also that had that same kind of yeah, that was long a fun room. bar kind yeah. of feel to it. You get you get that with Blackbird for sure. Mm-hmm. Or even like Mike and Molly's Beer Garden. And I know, fortunately, oh, yeah. Seven Saints Beer Garden, they will do the occasional show. Poor Brothers, we got a gig coming up there this summer. And that's, a, again, just kind of like a long beer garden. But it works out well because you got an elevated stage area. And on a nice summer night, that that does just fine. So I, I think ultimately, it just feels like we, we are in a valley, so to speak, of, of the local music scene. Because there's the, the venues are limited. And I don't know... I feel like this trend started maybe a decade ago, and I'm going to sound like old man yelling at cloud mm, here, but uh-huh. electronic music for college kids, that's where it's at, and it's only continued to go that direction. So you can kind of take the campus market and say, well, that ain't happening. Okay, so you move that aside. Well, what about downtown Champaign? Okay, well, there's Neal Street Blues, and that's a cool little spot. Clark mm. Bar is great for more acoustic-based shows. City Center's big, uh, apart from that. Hmm. And then you go to Urbana, and fortunately, you do have a Blackbird. You still got Iron Post, Rose Bowl. Mm-hmm. And that's a cool spot, and that's one to look at. But um, yeah, it just feels like for a, a, a market that has what, like one hundred and thirty thousand. I mean, right, significant population, yeah. and we're struggling to have a live music scene because it used to be in downtown Champaign. You go there on a Friday or Saturday night in the summer, especially, and you had four or five options, all within yeah. walking distance. You could yeah. hit up to if even three shows if you wanted to. It's frustrating nonetheless, though, and that, that was the case 10 years ago. It's the case now, in that if you want to be in a band, you need to decide one of two paths. It can either be a hobby that you enjoy, right. or you can decide that you're going to live out the struggle. And for me, I, I love my creature comforts, and I'm a homebody, so it's like, well... I need my day gig, and this will be my night gig. Right. And irregularly so. Even at our peak, Decadence was playing maybe three out of four weekends a month at our, maybe, maybe. But more like one gig a month. And that was what we were comfortable with, and we decided we are going to live other lives than that. But And you didn't tour as well. Yeah. Or, did, did, we, or you might have made the occasional day trip out to St. Louis or, or we did, Chicago. We did, or, we did the Elbow Room in Chicago a few times. And it was great, because the one thing about the Elbow Room is it was easy for our Chicago friends to get two for one. So we could get, you know, 40 or 50 right. people 
especially post-college when everyone moved back home. It's like, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. How about you come to the Elbow Room? But also what was great about that is, is we're bringing our, like I'm driving my Honda Accord up there. Well, the Elbow Room, they had a back line already and they had a drum set and they had uh. Marshall stacks and all that. So all you had to bring was your guitar. And I was like, how convenient is that? But we... We never played indie. Not that indie's, I don't know how much of a market that is. We never did St. Louis. It was mm. really just Elbow Room was our Chicago gig. And we did the Cubby Bear once, and that, that turned out okay. But, yeah, the, the thing of touring would have been, okay, well, the minute I would even broach that thought is, well, what about this and what about that? All these, like, right. well, who's going to mow the yard you know just all these things that are and then it's like well maybe the whole touring rock star thing isn't in the cards if i'm even thinking about that kind of stuff right but speaking of side gigs you are also a member of the champagne showers podcast network with your podcast the 200 level the music thing was a hobby passion whatever you want to call it and always will be so fortunately that Mm. can maintain a space in my life no matter what else I'm doing. I was on radio for about a decade after college up through last year when I became a teacher full-time. And then the radio gig ended, it would have been last summer, through circumstances that were a little bit out of my control and disappointing at the time. But this is such an old cliche, and I didn't necessarily believe this at the time, but one door closes, another door opens. But what's beautiful about podcasting, which I, I was an avid consumer of them anyways, but... I love being able to do it on my own time. It's in my basement. I can just mm-hmm. pop down there when I'm feeling the you know, inspiration or whatever. In addition to music, sports have always been a part of my life. In this community, Illinois basketball has always right. been a big part of my life. Football's always sucked, so whatever. We, we, <laughs> we, get, we get used to it. Uh, but it is fun to to do that, to scratch that itch and be able to be able to do that on your own accord and not have uh, because I I will say that when things were bad with Illinois sports which the last decade they mostly have been to get on there every day you eventually and what we decided to turn it into was we're just going to hang out with friends and we just happen to be talking about sports and that's what you kind of had to do otherwise you'd go nuts with it but with (laughs) this it's you know once a week couple hours and sort of like what you do i mean you get a nice space going it becomes a a place that you can go and just be creative for a bit and then go back upstairs and watch a little tv and just whatever i mean to me i do like that freedom with it well so in a certain sense though this well this won't obviously upset your corgi but it also (laughs) it's in your house so it's not like you feel like you're you mentioned earlier that you would have a rehearsal space where you would it felt good to be able to kind of go and clock in so do you feel like this is more like that passion yeah totally i mean yeah usually it's like here rosie her name's rosie for rosalita for the spring Mm -hmm. scene song here's here's ringbone go off and do your thing and she's occupied for the next hour and i can just go down there and riff And, and with the solo podcast the most of what i'll do is i'll maybe write a few notes and then if I reach the end of a point, maybe I'll pause it, take a quick drink, you know, kind of regroup and then think, okay, what am I going to say next and try to self-edit as I'm doing it. But for the most part, I don't record and then go back and then take out little bits. I, I will pause myself and then delete that last five seconds if I didn't like it, but then just try to press on mm. and then mix it down from there. But uh, the cool thing with it, especially the way that podcasting is gone, there's an immediacy to it. So when something does happen, I can immediately go down 
and respond to it. Right. So an example of that would have been last week after the Illinois-Michigan State game where Io looked to blow out his knee. Yeah. Right. Go down to record a podcast and 30 minutes into it, I get a text message saying, hey, there's no structural damage. And I'm, I hit control A. I delete those 30 minutes. I'm like, well, okay, got to redo this because I was essentially, <laughs> you know, lamenting the yeah. end of the season. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden I'm like, well, okay, this is an entirely different thing. But I didn't realize that that had happened. Yeah. I, no, I mean, I knew about that uh, IO had gotten, was better, but I didn't really, and I saw that you had posted a an episode about that but i didn't realize that you had already recorded about 30 minutes and then just said yeah forget it i was at 35 minutes and trying to rationalize the loss of the best player and say well we still got a chance here and i knew i was just talking myself into it i didn't even feel comfortable as i was talking about it thinking do you Mm. really believe what you're saying right now or is that the fan trying to you know be optimistic i got that text and i was like okay easy easy decision here and then i just deleted those 35 minutes and said okay let's start over again do you find that illinois fans are an awful lot like cubs fans like it's tortured yeah tortured but always well there's always next season or this was a building year yeah a little bit i'm thinking that with illinois football that's where the cubs thing comes in yeah and really actually illinois football is far more hapless than the Cubs historically. I mean, mm, the Cubs, I know true. that they got fun, made fun of and for good reason, but for the most part, probably more respectable history on the field than Illinois football. With, with Illinois basketball, it is something where they've been so close. I mean, they've been right, right there that, yeah. for extended periods of time. And I know what it's like here in, during a winter when they are good. And, and to me, it makes winter go that much quicker when I know every two, three nights a week, I have an Illinois basketball game to look forward to. And then I have an NCAA tournament to look forward to, too. Right. Feels like this year it will still end up with that. I mean, by the time people listen to this, I may have dated myself and Illinois misses out on Selection Sunday. Who knows? Oh. Well. But <laughs> for me, it was two things growing up. Now, I couldn't play sports. So it it's hmm. simply was a matter of talking about it. I could at least do something with music and create something. So for the sports angle, it wasn't, well, I'm going to scratch that itch by going out on the court or trying out for the team. I, I did one tryout for seventh grade basketball and I went home that night and I just told my dad, it, it's not in the cards. Hmm. Like, let's, let's be real. I'm not good. And he was, he understood. And he wasn't like, all right, come on, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It was, hmm. it was an acknowledgement that, you know, it's not for everybody. And that's fine. But I still love it. I still love watching it and talking about it. Champagne is also a band podcast is proud to support Jubilee Cafe. Jubilee Cafe is a free weekly meal program at Community United Church of Christ, 805 South 6th Street in Champaign, Illinois. Jubilee Cafe serves a home-cooked meal from 5 to 6.30 each Monday. Their mission is to feed hungry people by cooking healthy, delicious meals and by serving their guests restaurant-style with servers waiting on tables. Jubilee Cafe is open to anyone who cares to eat with them. Because food insecurity among students is so high, they serve students as well as others in and around the Champaign-Urbana community who struggle with hunger. Meals are free to all and will be served each Monday evening. Located in the accessible lower level of the building at 6th and Daniel Streets in Champaign. For more information on the meal or how to volunteer, go to the Jubilee Cafe CUCC Facebook page or email them at jubilee.cafe at community-ucc.org. That's 
jubilee.cafe at community-ucc.org. Mike, what is your favorite non-musical thing? Favorite non-musical thing. I mean, I mentioned the sports thing with podcasting, but if you told me all of a sudden you're going to wake up tomorrow and sports don't exist, Mm. I'd be fine. Uh, I'd find other things to do. And honestly, probably save myself a lot of headaches in the process because it's ridiculous how even at 33, I noticed that the last decade of Illinois sports, they were so bad, I wasn't emotionally invested. Mm. So I felt like, oh, I'm becoming a mature fan. And then I went to a game... A week ago when they were in the thick of the Big Ten race. Right. And I'm just like full-throated meatball fan. And I'm like, what happened to me? Mm. I'm, I'm just like I was when I was 18 years old. I didn't grow at all. I'm the same person. But sports go away tomorrow. That's fine. We off mic had a brief uh, conversation about movies. And I think for me, from a young age, it was like the first time that I watched a Hitchcock movie. And realized that there were more than just like Jurassic Park. And I love Jurassic Park. Don't get me wrong. Great, great movie. But I think the first time I saw Vertigo and I thought, well, I'm eight and I don't understand this, but there's something going on here. And like with great music, you know, the first time I heard Stairway to Heaven, as cliche as it sounds, it didn't grab me right away. But about five minutes after it ended, I was like, I need to rewind the cassette tape. I need to listen to that again. I'm intrigued. And I, at age eight, you don't know what intrigued means, but you are. You just are because of what you, an emotion or a feeling. So I would say maybe movies. You know, yeah. that's something that my wife and I will binge watch TV shows, and they're they're super high quality nowadays, and often as good as any movie that you could see. But there is something about the experience of going to a movie theater for an anticipated movie. Mm-hmm. And one moment in my life, this just happened last year at the Virginia Theater was they had the 50th anniversary of 2001, the original print. Oh. And the way they were billing it was it was unremastered. So it's got all the cracks and everything in it too. Mm. And it was a Saturday afternoon, two o'clock, whatever. No one really in the theater, maybe 25 people. And I just plant myself third row center, just right in front of that gigantic screen and was reminded like this is, to me, as close of a feeling as you could get to going to a great concert. Where you know you're about to experience something. Hmm. So for me, I would say probably movies would be second. And I feel like if you gave me the tools that, you know, I can I can use Acid Pro or something and record an album, even if it's somewhat amateur quality, right? I can mm. do that. Yeah. But if there was such a thing to do with m- filmmaking, that'd be great to be able to just pick up a camera and then just kind of make your own film. The only difference is that with a band, you only need four people to even do a, you know, low budget film you need like a hundred it's a whole thing right so i don't know how i would ever find my avenue into that but for now i just enjoy hmm. watching yeah. and experiencing them like it's one of those things that you watch it and you know what it is but if someone said okay now go do it and music always felt like something that because i started piano lessons when i was three or four i think twinkle twinkle little star and all that yeah. And, you know, for the first few years, I didn't like it. It just felt like, oh, you know, piano lessons, fine. Every Tuesday, it's after school, whatever. And then eventually you get over that hump and you start enjoying it. And then realize that, oh, well, I can do this. But with Mm. filmmaking, it seems like, and I know that most of them started with like a Super 8 camera or something. Like the greats start with this very kind of low budget thing. But, you know, again, back to that idea that you need to now get people that can be in front of the camera. 
Hmm. And then, oh, well, you probably need a boom mic. Okay, crap, I got to buy a boom mic now. Oh, you probably need this, probably need that. And I know the same thing goes for music to an extent. But really, you know, four-piece rock band, it's like, okay, I got an amp and guitar. Other guitarist has an amp and a guitar. Bass player's got a bass amp and a bass. And the drummer's got his drums. Okay, we're good to go. Oh, wait, we need a PA. And then you're done. So there, there is that much more, the do-it-yourself thing, I think, comes far easier for music than it would for putting anything on a camera. I mean, do, do you have a favorite movie? 2001. 2001 yeah, is that, re, that reaffirmed it when I saw it. And okay. It, it, you know, all, all these years later, because I, I rented it when I was 10 or 11. I love Summer Vacation. I mean, who doesn't? But And part of the reason I probably went into teaching is knowing that I would get summer vacation for the rest of my life. It's great. Uh And I don't get bored. Some people do, but I'm good. I'll find things to do. And we would go to Blockbuster. We would go and I'd rent a few movies for the week. Another cool thing that my parents would do in addition, I mean, they come to like every gig. I mean, they're the most supportive parents you could ever ask for. But on Fridays... I would go with my mom or my dad to Blockbuster and then they'd get me Taco Bell or something like that. So I get like two or three movies for the weekend. And what I would go through is these phases. So I go through a Hitchcock phase and I get like a Hitchcock book so I could read about it after I watched it. Or I'd go through a James Bond movie phase and then I get a James Bond movie book and read about those. But 2001 was the summer vacation, maybe like fifth or sixth grade on small tv this is pre-hd tvs and all that by like 10 years and still like what the hell did i watch like at 10 a.m in the morning and still being really intrigued and then the other movie i would put up there is a 1b if 1a is 2001 1b would be there will be blood Mm. with daniel day lewis and paul thomas anderson's the director he did boogie nights which is another great movie magnolia but that movie just draws me in and is very stylistically similar to Stanley Kubrick, 2001 director. So maybe that's why yeah. I like it. Yeah. The aesthetic well, of it. I, I mean, I'm a fan of Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick and then, you know, Scorsese. You watch Goodfellas and you're like, okay, I can watch that once a year. That's right. one of those once a year, got to watch Goodfellas at some point. Hmm. Same with Pulp Fiction. Yeah. yeah. You know, the rewatchability is really high. Hey. I mean, it's, but th- that's the thing. The great thing about movies and the reason I love talking about them is sort of, if we talk music and you said, well, what's your favorite Zeppelin album? Right. We could have a whole hour on, well, which one's your favorite? Right. And the subjectivity of it leads to these great discussions and uh, other friends of mine, one really didn't like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And this running joke is that he thought that Little Women was a far better film. And I'm like, I know Little Women was probably great because Greta Gerwig's a great director and I'm excited to see it myself, but there's no way it's better than one, you know? So it leads to those sort of uh, passionate discussions that are always fun. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for talking about your song, I'd Rather Be Lonely, off of the soon-to-be-reissued album, Elegantly Wasted, talking about the scene and your early high school moments of oh playing at the <laughs> Channy Murray. And I, Great I, venue. I, I swear, do you happen to have a picture of that shirt? Because I would love to repost that. I have but, the shirt. My parents have copies of the shirts <laughs> they have. The flyers that we I would take to high school and be oh like, three gosh. bands, three bucks, Channing Murray Foundation. And then sharing your favorite non-musical things. And I, I just look forward to many other years of you playing as decadence and being a part of the music scene. No, oh, I appreciate you having me. I, I don't get to talk about music often. And I, I don't know if this is off the air or off the mic or on the mic, but... 
you know, the weariness in talking about it is that I would consume, you know, the, the one example would be the making of Dark Side of the Moon. And I'm hearing Roger Waters and David Gilmour talking right. about it. And they're talking about a masterpiece. So whatever they say about it, it could be the most pretentious thing ever. And I'm like, yes, yes, of course. That makes oh, sense. Yeah. So then talking about your own music, which, you know, I don't know about other people and how they create their work. Inspiration or whatever you want to call it is often sort of a nonverbal thing. You aren't thinking literally as you create something. You're just sort of doing it. At least that's what I feel like when these songs come up. So, or Keith Richards' example is that you're kind of a conduit and mm. the songs just arrive, like, you know, out of the ether. Oh, there's a song. And it does feel like that sometimes. So, in talking about it, hopefully I didn't come off... Um, Certainly not pretentious, I hope not. And acknowledging that, you know, what we got, I'm really proud of what Decadence has done. I'm really proud of that album and excited that it will be out there in March in a far more sonically powerful version and not in sort of the, uh, what was that whole thing in the mid-2000s, the brick wall where they were just, oh. everything was compressed to all hell just to be loud. Right. This is not that. This is not that. It's got good. it's got a good kind of sizzle to it that we didn't have before. So it's nice to get the band back together and be playing original gigs and be working on a new album this mm. year, which we hope will be out in June or July. Excellent. And, you know, where, wherever the scene's at now, there's still places to play. There's still people to come to shows. And I think that like any peak and valley, We'll get new venues, we'll get new voices, and it's still cool to know, especially after playing the great cover-up, that there are these institutions in town, like a Ward Gollings, who's been booking and promoting for decades now. Um, you know, it's still good to know that there is a scene, and that the people behind it are, you know, they have the best interest at mm. heart. So, it's just it's fun to be a part of it and fun to talk music. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you for listening to Champagne is Also a Band Podcast. This is Mike Carpenter from Decadence reminding you, great music is out there. Go find it where you live. the dangerous thing too is like i'm also one who consumes like the making of so-and-so album documentaries really? and you see these musicians and they're, they're like wow no, that's a very thoughtful response and it's like oh shit like what's my thoughtful response you almost have an npr voice it's so good <laughs> <laughs> to the studio, South Beaker, on the inside